below Cornerstone Tulsa. Hope that this uh, sermon finds you well. Uh, some of you don't know who I am. Uh, my name is Andrew Arndt, and uh, I gotta give you some context for myself. I guess I'm uh, born and raised Central Wisconsin. Uh, I have some history in Tulsa. Uh, I went to ORU from 99 to 03, and then uh, lived up in Chicago for a bit, went to seminary up there, and took my first job at a church back in Tulsa. So we were in Tulsa from 06 to 09, and then uh, moved to Denver to help some friends plant a church, and now we're at New Life Church here in Colorado Springs, and we've been here since 2017. And I got to tell you, we were so looking forward to coming and being with you guys this weekend because of the history that we have in Tulsa. And also this week is my wife, Mandy. My wife, Mandy, and I were going on 20 years of marriage this August, and this uh, this is her 40th birthday this week. And so we were looking forward to having like this incredible birthday week. And then coming to Tulsa and hanging out with a bunch of old friends, and I was looking forward to seeing my good friend John Odom and preaching for you guys, and all that stuff just went out the window. But, you know, here we are. The gift of technology allows us to stay connected with one another, and that's a great thing. Uh, it's such a wonderful thing to hear about all of the good stuff that's happening with you guys at Cornerstone Tulsa, and uh, part, of the, part of the sadness of us not being able to come this weekend is we have good friends that are a part of y'all's congregation. So Bill and Marcia Ranahan, way back when we were in college, uh, we were in a small group with the Ranahans, and so uh, we were looking forward to seeing them. Uh, ben and Noel Kilgore, man, Ben and I back in the day worked at Charleston's, and we could tell you stories as the day is long of the hijinks that went on there. And then, of course, Nathan and Shannon Phillips, 15 years ago, Mandy and I accidentally crashed a wedding. This is a true story. And those people wound up becoming some of our best friends, Nathan and Shannon Phillips. So it's just so good what all the things that the Holy Spirit is doing among you and the wonderful people that are gathering. And you guys, I just, I need to tell you this. You have a wonderful, uh, big hearted, wise, uh, caring and careful pastor in John Odom. And I pray that you are praying for him and supporting him and his family. And because I know that he's praying for you and he's covering you in love too. So anyway, you're in a series here on the Sermon on the Mount. And I absolutely love the Sermon on the Mount. To me, the Sermon on the Mount really is the picture of what Jesus is longing for from his people, from his community. And so I'm going to be in the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse 33, and I want to talk to you about Jesus' teaching here on the taking of oaths and what he has to say about our speech. But before we get into the text of Scripture, let's just pause our hearts here for a word of prayer. Lord, we center ourselves in you, and we say that above and beyond all things, and inside of all things, you are our God. The psalmist said that apart from you, he had no good thing. He had no good thing. You are the good, you are the true, you are the beautiful. You are our source, you are hope, you are the strength of our lives. You are our portion, you are our cup, and you are the one who is making our lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places with you, with your kingdom. 
And in you, we have a delightful inheritance. And we are so grateful for that. We're so grateful for that. We're grateful for the scripture. Jesus, you taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The scripture is part and parcel of the daily bread of presence that you give to us. And so we pray that this day, as we meditate together upon the text of scripture, that the scripture would be more than ancient words, that it would be something that's lifted up in the hands of God, that it's blessed and it's broken and it's given to us as bread, that these words would become the word, capital W, of the living God to us. We pray that you would interrupt all that needs to be interrupted in us. We pray that you would break down all that needs to be broken down in us. And we pray that you would resurrect all that can and should and must be resurrected in us for the sake of your kingdom. I pray that the words today of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's ears would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Jesus says again that you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But he says, I'm telling you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not, he says, swear by your head, for you are not able to make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is say simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Jesus, in this little passage of scripture here, he's doing here, he's repeating a pattern that he set down in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you have heard that it was said, and but I say to you, there is this negative thing and then there's this positive thing that he's moving towards. I know that John has talked with you some about this, but it's important to bear in mind that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's not sort of just giving general ethical advice, but what he's doing is he's talking very concretely to the church, to the community that's gathered around him. Look down at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, so Jesus looks out, crowds have been gathering, they've heard of his teachings and his miracles and the power that's coming from him, and so he's gathering quite a bit of a crowd. There are many people that are coming from many corners of of the world to see him and to hear him. And so he sees the crowd, the scripture says, and then he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down in the authoritative posture of a teacher. And the scripture says, then his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He launches in with the Beatitudes. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes that what Jesus is doing here is he's calling the disciples to himself out of the world and he's equipping them to be the church inside of the world. And that's really what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you're the light of the world, he says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So whatever it is he's doing for his disciples here is to radiate out from them to the world. Verse 17, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now he wants to fix his teaching inside of the teaching of Moses. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. This is so critical to get. 
but I've come actually to fill them up. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless, this is so great, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not abolishing the law and the prophets. But what he's doing is he's taking the pattern that the law and the prophets have set down and he's finding a way to fill it up with positive content. So Jesus is taking his community, the church, out beyond a purely negative morality. That's how we might say it. The purely negative morality of the Decalogue. Do not do this. Do not do that. Right? And that's how the Decalogue is framed. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. So Jesus is taking his community out beyond the negative framework of the Decalogue and into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so now back to our teaching here, Matthew 5 and verse 33. The taking of oaths. Of course, when you think about the Decalogue itself, the second to the last command, the ninth commandment, is thou shalt not bear false witness. So what is front and center in this teaching is the issue of our speech. And of course, that's an issue, uh, that's an issue that's very front and center even for the Old Testament. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We understand from the Decalogue that very important human things ride on the veracity of our speech. Now, that's one way, thou shalt not bear false witness, is one way that the teaching about our speech gets fleshed out in the Old Testament, but it gets fleshed out in other ways as well. In fact, you might think of the Pentateuch as a kind of, in some ways, as a kind of riff on the Decalogue. There's an expansion on the Decalogue as it's being applied to new situations. So listen to this. This is Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 11. Moses says, do not lie, do not deceive one another, and do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Well, why would anybody swear falsely by the name of God? Well, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a kind of religious veneer of speech that creates a space where you can just kind of get away with doing whatever you want to do. And the Lord, who only deals in reality, says, you will not take my name and attach it to empty things in order to do evil things. Don't do that. He says, I'm the Lord your God. I don't want any part of that. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, another place where this comes out. The Lord says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you're not guilty. In other words, nobody's forcing you into taking the vow in the first place. But he says, verse 23, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you've made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. In other words, Nobody's forcing you to make a vow in the first place, but but if you do make the vow, don't take the vow and either use it to do evil things or not fulfill the vow. Your speech matters. So here is the Decalogue sort of setting up almost this negative space, right? Don't do this and don't do that. Here's like the outer boundaries of how you ought to think about what is appropriate with your language. And then you have Jesus. Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oaths. It's a bad thing to break your oaths. If you make a promise, fulfill the promise, right? He says, but fulfill to the vow, the Lord the vows you made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. 
either by heaven for its God's throne, or by the earth for its footstool, or by Jerusalem for its city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. All you need is simply to say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So here is Jesus doing what Jesus characteristically does in the Gospels. What Jesus does is he presses behind the prohibition to the real root problem. Jesus is not against the taking of oaths. But what Jesus sees is that the laws regulating speech, while not bad in and of themselves, they fail to address the root problem. And the root problem is that our speech has lost touch with reality. And so laws and regulations about the taking of oaths for Jesus are not a solution to the problem. Laws and regulations around the taking of oaths really are like a band-aid to put on this open, gaping wound in our humanity. And Jesus has not come just to bandage up our humanity, but Jesus has come to heal our humanity. So the laws about the oaths are not bad laws. It's just that they fail to address the root problem, that there's some discrepancy, that there's some gap that has opened up between our speech and what we do, or even better, between our speech and reality itself. Uh, R.T. France, the great commentator of the New Testament, a wonderful commentary out in the book of Matthew, and he notes that there was a radical group, Josephus actually, the Jewish historian, notes that there was a radical group around the time of Jesus that, that they fought so hard really to obey as best as they could the Old Testament law, and that group was called the Essenes, and the, uh, Josephus says about the Essenes, but they say something similar to what Jesus says here, that every declaration the Essenes make is even stronger than an oath. And indeed, they avoid swearing at all because they regard it as worse than perjury on the grounds that anyone who cannot be believed without an appeal to God is already condemned. See, brothers and sisters, what has to happen, the Essenes understood it. And Jesus understands it even more clearly that what has to happen is there has to be a healing of our speech. If we have to swear upon heaven to get people to believe, then something is sick in us. We're self-condemned already. We need, we need the Lord to come and we need him to make us new. The issue of our speech is such an important issue for us. The Decalogue gets at it. The Old Testament expands on it. Jesus speaks on it here. The New Testament everywhere talks about it. But our speech really constitutes the bonds between us. And when our speech starts crumbling, when it starts wandering into unreality, um, the bonds between us really begin to fray. I think that this was driven home for me in a really powerful way when I was a kid. I was probably 9, 10, 11 years old, and I was over at my uh, friend's house one particular day. And uh, uh, in their bathroom, I was washing up, and uh, I noticed sitting on the bathroom counter that there was a silver dollar there. And uh, I think I knew better. Actually, I know that I knew better than to take a silver dollar sitting on the bathroom counter of your friend's house. But there was some desperately wicked, I think, part of my mind that just kind of went, oh, that's loose change. Why don't I just grab that and make off with it? And so I did. I grabbed the silver dollar and I stuck it in my pocket and uh kept it for some occasion you know a couple days later we're at church and i wandered into the church bookstore and i still got the silver dollar in my pocket and i thought to myself this is my moment i'm gonna buy something so i pulled the silver dollar out of my pocket and i remember i remember buying a package of certs the the mints 
you know, popped a couple in my mouth and that felt so good. And I had a little bit of change from the silver dollar and I stuck that in my pocket. And a couple days later, I was sitting at the uh, dining room table with my parents and I still had the certs in my pocket. And so I reached into the pocket, dinner's over, and I pulled the certs out of my pocket and I popped a couple in my mouth. And my dad, you know how your parents just so annoying, you know, my dad, like just nothing escaped his notice. And he goes, where'd you get those from? And I go, well, I got them from the church bookstore. And he goes, well, and he knew that I didn't have any money. He goes, well, what money did you use to pay for that? And I go, well, I don't know. I hemmed and hawed about it, about how I got some money to pay for the certs. And he just would not believe it. He goes, I don't believe you. I think you're lying. He knew I was lying. He goes, I want you to go take the dog out and uh, come back inside when you can get your story straight and tell us, you know, where you got the money to buy the search from. I go, ah, okay. So I take the dog outside and come back inside. He goes, where'd you get the search from? Where'd you get the money to buy the certs? And I concocted some stupid story, you know, told him another lie. He goes, I don't believe you. And he sent me on another errand. He goes, go run this errand. And when you come back, have your story straight. We did this about a half a dozen times, every stinking time. I came back and my story is, it's a lie. It's a bold-faced lie is what it is. And he'd send me on this errand. And this happened over and over again. And finally, I just confessed to my parents. I go, look, I was at my friend's house. I was at the Drock's house. And I saw a silver dollar. And it was just kind of loose change sitting there on the counter. And so... I took it and I used it. I don't know. I was like, you know, picking up a quarter on the sidewalk, right? And my parents both are just freaked out. These are like close family friends. My mom just looks at me with eyes like a flame of fire. And she goes, you do not. She goes, Andrew, Art, you do not just find money laying around the house of your friends. What are you, insane? She goes, this is what you're going to do. So my parents, they told me I'm going to have to get on the phone with the drugs and confess to them what I did. And then I was going to go over there and I was going to take the money back to them. And then I was going to find a way to repay them. And then this was the worst part of it. That next Saturday morning, this was back in the day when they still had Saturday morning cartoons. I had to give up Saturday morning cartoons and write out Proverbs 19.22 100 times by hand. It is better to be a poor man than a liar. And I'm telling you, I remember doing that exercise and thinking to myself, I don't understand it. Like this is, we're just talking about a dollar and some certs. And like, what is the big deal? Like this all just seems like such a huge overreaction. But of course I have kids now and I've lived a lot longer now. It's been almost 30 or so years since that moment. And I've seen that if our speech cannot be trusted, when our speech starts shading into unreality, what happens is it, breaks down the bonds between us. It does violence to our relationships. And my parents understood that that element of untruth and mistrust planted inside intimate relationships has the potential to spoil those relationships. And I've seen that now with my kids and all kids at some point, you know, they deal with this issue of not being exactly truthful. I remember Oh, when I, so we have four kids, Ethan, who's turning 14 this summer, Gabe, who's turning 13 this summer, Bella, who's turning 11, and Liam, who's turning eight. And uh, our two oldest boys, you know, they're so close together. And I remember, this is a funny story, but I remember when they were just little guys, Ethan was probably three, and I think Gabe was two or so. And uh, we had just moved to Denver, and we were in this new house and just kind of getting settled into it. And those boys, they had a basement area that we had given to them that was like their play area. And they always just kept it abominably messy. And they're at the age where we're wanting to try to instill in them the value of like, you have to, you can make a mess, but you got to clean it up you know, before dinner. So we called out to the boys. We said, hey guys, we're going to eat dinner in a few minutes. You got to get the basement cleaned up. And they're in the little voices, you know, okay. 
And pretty soon, like probably five minutes later, I see little Gabe, two-year-old Gabe, comes walking up the stairs. And I go, hey, Gabe. I go, Gabe, I said, did you clean up the basement? And he goes, yeah. And right up behind him comes little Ethan. And Ethan goes, no, he didn't. He didn't clean up the basement. It's not done being clean. Ethan goes, he's lying. And I go, Gabe, are you lying? And Gabe goes, he put his finger next to his mouth. And he goes, I like lying. <laughs> and it just killed me because it made me realize, I mean, Mandy and I, we could hardly restrain ourselves from laughing, but it killed me because it made me realize that there's really a fundamental difficulty that we deal with when it comes to human speech. And it starts at a very early age. What Gabe was doing was he was using words to avoid pain and move towards pleasure. And when we think about our speech like that, that speech is a way of avoiding pain or just procuring pleasure for ourselves, we inevitably wind up lurching into unreality, into untruth. And it has a destructive impact on it, which is why Jesus says, look down in your Bibles at verse 37. He says that all you need is simply to say yes or no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, when our speech lurches into unreality, when our speech becomes inauthentic, and there are bold-faced destructive lies, and then there are the little lies that we kind of live in, the little elements of inauthenticity, those, those moments when we're not being the way that we need to be inside relationships, those moments when we commit acts against one another that hurt each other, but we don't really tell the truth about it. It's every manner and grade of untruth. What it does, according to Jesus, is it opens up the door for the evil one. Hell literally comes spilling in to our communities, to our families, to our marriages, to our friendships, because our speech has lost touch with the truth. We're not using speech anymore to tell the truth about what is. We're not using speech anymore to try to shine a light on reality, but instead we're using speech the way that little Gabe uses, used speech, just to try to procure pleasure or just to try to avoid pain. And Christians are people who believe that our that human humanity's entire understanding of words and truth, that there's a better story to tell about that. One of Jesus' best friends, John, said that the word became flesh and moved in to the neighborhood. The word became flesh. See, Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus is the truth of God. And when God speaks, when God speaks to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 23, he says, whatever your lips have said, make sure that you go ahead and do. Well, God is the one, theologians have said, whose speech and whose doing are the same thing. That when God speaks, he performs it. There is nothing about God's speech that is unreal. There is nothing about God's speech that is shadowy. There is nothing about God's speech that is murky. Everything that God says and does is utterly veracious. It's truthful to the very core. And that word of God, that speech of God, the scripture says it took on human flesh. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And when that word lived and moved among us, all it ever did, guys, 
was it healed and it built up and it made whole because that's what the truth does. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What does the truth do? What does the word of God do when the word walks in human flesh? The word opens up blind eyes because blindness is a lie against the truth of eyes. What does the word do when the word walks among us? The word opens up deaf ears because deafness is a lie against the truth of what ears were made to do. What does the word do when the word walks among us? The word unstops. It looses the mute tongue because the mute tongue is a lie against the truth of what tongues were made to do. Whatever the word of God does, wherever the word of God goes, he performs life, which is what our speech is supposed to do. And God's word in human flesh, in Jesus Christ, was so radical, our encounter with it, it struck us as so radical that we tried to push the word of God out. We called the word of God a blasphemer, but it turns out that we were the blasphemers. So we pushed the word of God into unreality and we crucified the word of God. But God loosed him from the bonds of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on the truthful word of God. And three days later, the word of God rose from the dead, established forever in the new creation, established forever in the kingdom is the unbreakable word of God. So we ask the question then of Jesus, what does it look like then for us to come back into a place of truthful speech? How will we be healed of our untruthful speech? And I think that what must happen is that we must be shattered against the word of God himself. We must be shattered against Jesus. We must stop the lying and we must stop the pretending. We must give up every strategy that we've created to use our speech, both to simply procure pleasure or avoid pain, and instead come humbly and submitted to the word of God himself, Jesus the Lord. There is an act that Christians engage in, most Christians anyway. Every time they come to worship and as they prepare their hearts for the table, what they do is an examination of conscience. And at our church, and I don't know how it is at Cornerstone Tulsa, I suspect it's similar, but when we prepare our hearts to encounter the word of God in the bread and the cup, what we do is we begin an examination. And we say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. See, what we do in that moment is we allow ourselves to be shattered by the rock Christ Jesus. And in that moment of admitting that we have walked in false ways, in that moment of admitting that we have not walked in the truth, but we've walked in lies, that moment of admitting it is the very moment of our speech starting to line up once again with the truth. That moment of repentance and confession, that is the healing of our speech. That is the healing of our speech. And it's not just a thing for us to practice on Sundays, but it's a thing for us to embody in our lived way of being with one another and in our living and our moving and our dwelling with one another, that we embody it in our relationships with one another. We just read with our kids today in Proverbs that humility is the fear of the Lord. Humility is the fear of the Lord. This is from Proverbs chapter 22. And it's wages are riches, honor, and life. That when we come to a place of humility, of brokenness, of admitting that our speech has been wonky and that it's wandered into unreality, that what happens is that God begins to heal us. Life comes to us. This has happened so many times in my relationship with my wife and with my kids. 
that there are times that I've wronged them or I've just behaved like a just a complete bear, a knucklehead. And and what happens is you have this pride that starts rising up in you. You go, ah, I'm going to double down on my mistake and nobody should be able to tell me. But the most healing moments that I've experienced in my family have been those moments, the most tender moments, the most the, where the greatest grace spills in. Have been those moments where I've gotten down on my knees in front of my little kids and have said to them, guys, dad was wrong. I'm sorry for how I've been treating you. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for what I did do. I'm sorry for what I didn't do. I was wrong. Can you please forgive me? Mandy and I going on 20 years of marriage. Uh, moments too numerous to count where we've just been stuck with one another and talking past each other and there's no intimacy and our hearts are not connecting. And the thing that always breaks it loose is that somebody will go, listen, I'm so sorry for what I said and I'm so sorry for what how I've been behaving and I'm so sorry for what I've done. We're not doubling down on mistakes, but we're allowing ourselves to be broken by the rock Christ Jesus. And I'm saying to you today that wherever you find yourself, um, all of us find ourselves mired in a web of relationships, some of which are working wonderfully and others of which are not working well at all. And Jesus insists that the only way that his community will be whole is if their yes is yes and their no is no. And I'm saying to you that the only way we can get back into that utterly truthful speech is by admitting to the one whose speech is always truthful. In fact, the one who is the truthful speech of God in the flesh that we admit to him and to one another, the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth, that we have sinned by our own fault and thought word. Indeed, it's in allowing ourselves to be broken against the resurrected word, Christ Jesus, that we find that we're made whole, that we're, heal that we're healed. Christians are people, I want to say to you today, who have nothing to fear from the truth of that moment because we have met the truth himself and he is utterly gracious to us. And so Cornerstone Tulsa, I am praying over you today. I'm praying that you would allow yourself to be shattered on the rock, Christ Jesus. I'm praying that all hardness of heart and you would be softened and all blindness of heart and you would be healed. And I'm praying that your light would shine in the city of Tulsa. I'm praying that your families would be whole and your relationships would be whole and your marriages would be whole because you've determined to walk in and with the truth that is Christ Jesus. I'm praying that over you today. Now, my brothers and sisters, I say to you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Friends, good to be together. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Andrew, for listening. If you want to hear more from Andrew, he's the pastor of New Life East in Colorado Springs. He's the host of the Essential Church podcast with some other friends uh, in the city. He's got a book coming out uh, next year. Really love Andrew and hope that he can come be with us uh, in person. He's already given the benediction, so I just say, friends, love you, praying for you. Hang in there, and we'll catch up soon. See you around.